This Tuesday, the 12th of September, the marriage survey voting packs are getting posted out to all Australians who are registered with the Australian Electoral Commission. Uh, so over the next week, depending on what day your mail arrives, uh, the voters among us will be getting our voting packs. Uh, it's not very often the government asks us for our opinion, uh, but that's just what it's doing just now. Not that the mind of the Australian voting public is valued by everybody. Uh, the Labor Party and the Greens have promised us that regardless of any outcome of this marriage survey, they're going to bring in same-sex marriage at the earliest opportunity. Uh, the issue at hand, of course, is same-sex marriage and whether it's a good idea or not for Australia to allow men to marry men and women to marry women. And for some, it's a matter of opinion. For some, it's a matter of conviction. Uh, for some, it's something which is very personal and they feel it cuts to the very core of what it means for them to be human. Uh, for some, it's a matter of ideology. For some, it's a matter of theology. And some people, well, they just don't care. So let's begin today with what the Bible has to say about marriage. Right back in Genesis chapter 2, we see the first marriage. It's not called a wedding. There's no signing of registers. There's no celebrants or photographers or white dresses or fancy speeches. But it is a wedding just the same. And Genesis chapter 2 verses 18 to 25 says this. Then Yahweh God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, Yahweh God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So Yahweh God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that Yahweh God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, Woohoo! Well, that's not his exact words, but pretty much. He said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of a man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So right at the very point of creation, this thing that we call marriage began and it continues today. This is God's purpose. A parent has responsibility for their children until they become adults. We do the best that we can with our kids, and then they become adults. But there comes a point, you see, where they're all grown up. They're no longer a child, and they leave their parents, and a man and a woman are joined to one another, and they become one flesh. This is the theology of marriage. A worldly view is you just get together and have sex. And, and if you also enjoy each other's company, you might even move in together and have a marriage-like relationship without any binding commitment or covenant of marriage. But the biblical view 
is that something profound happens when a man and a woman are joined together. They become one flesh. When it comes to marriage, the mathematics is one plus one equals one. And if we understood this, men, if we understood that when we hurt our wife, that we're hurting ourselves, or wife, if you understand that when you hurt your husband, you're hurting yourself, then we'd have a much better idea of what it means for us to submit to one another in marriage. Now, I'm not going to delve into that whole topic now because we just don't have time. Uh, if you want to learn a bit more about it, we talked about it when we studied the book of Ephesians back in 2014. So you can go to the Bush Disciples website and download the message there. And you can. there's a whole series of them there, particularly around Ephesians chapter 5 and chapter 6, which talk about sacrificial living and how as Christians we have this thing called sacrificial living in, and how it's comes out in, in all types of relationships, whether it be the husband and wife relationship or whether it's the parent-child relationship or, or how the child relates to the parent or how the employer relates to the employee or how the employee relates to the employer. It's all there in Ephesians chapter 5. But we, we'll leave that and you can look that up if you want to see some more about it. When a man and a woman are joined together in marriage they become one unit, not to be pulled apart. And that's why divorce is such a serious matter. God tells us in his word that he hates divorce. And according to the Bible, there's only a couple of circumstances where divorce is allowable, um, where there's been adultery in a marriage, because that's already broken the one flesh relationship, or when one party becomes a Christian and their spouse leaves them because they don't want to be part of a Christian household. That's the only two circumstances where the Bible shows us that divorce is actually permitted. Of course, there's other circumstances where separation would be a good thing in issues like domestic violence and stuff. But that's just, we're just talking about divorce there. So what about sex outside of marriage? Uh, there once was a time... Um, and it's not that long ago where, ooh, that was really frowned upon by community, but now it's become the norm. Um, but what does the Bible have to say about it? Well, biblically, it's just not on. Uh, if two unmarried people have sex, the term for that is fornication. Uh, and yes, fornication is a sin. And the one who does it is called a fornicator. Or a sinner. Now that's sort of words that have slipped from our language now. Some of these younger ones have probably never even heard that word before. Um, and if one or both of them are already married to somebody else, well then that's called adultery, which is also a sin. And so biblically, for Christians, um, sex outside of marriage is just not on. Now, that's the moral side of marriage. But there's something much, much deeper than the morality of sex and marriage. And that is the spiritual side of marriage and what it signifies. In the Bible reading that we just read there before, Ephesians chapter 5, it's hard to tell there whether it's teaching us about marriage and the family or if it's teaching us about Christ and his church. Is it using the simile of husbands and wives to help us to understand Christ and the church? Or is it using the simile of Christ and the church to help us to understand the marriage relationship? I think it's actually both. 
We will never fully understand Christ's relationship with the church unless we also understand how husbands and wives should be relating to one another. And we will never fully understand how husbands and wives should be relating to one another unless we can understand, the mar- understand how Christ loves his church. The two are so interconnected. As I mentioned before, we're currently in the middle of our series on the book of Revelation and we're just having time out today because the postal ballots come out this week and, and because this is marriage week. Um, and I thought it was important that we talk about it. But in the book of Revelation, only a few weeks ago, we saw the image of the church as the bride of Christ, pure and spotless and holy. Christ gave himself for the church And on the day of the resurrection, the church, Christians, are going to be united together with Christ. Just as on the day of a wedding, a man and a woman are joined together in the union of one flesh. And every time we see a wedding, every time we see husband and wife as the union of one flesh, this is a reminder for us to look forward to that time when Christ returns. All right, so that is a very cursory and, I admit, very incomplete glance at what the Bible has to say about marriage. If we're going to dig everything out, uh, we'd be here for a very long time. So let's come back to our topic for today. What does the Bible say about gender in marriage? Um, In 2004 the Australian Marriage Act had to be amended to specify that marriage was between a man and a woman. Uh, Before that, it was just assumed. It was just logical. That's the way it was understood. That's how everybody understood marriage. But there had come a real push in the community that, no, no, men should be able to marry men and women should be able to marry women. And so it was only in 2004 that we actually had any need at all to put those words in our in our marriage act but what that's the way the world has changed but we know that God doesn't change so what does the Bible have to say about gender in marriage well you'll be pleased to hear that the Bible is actually very inclusive it includes both genders in marriage one male and one female one man and one woman that's it now, what's the reason for this, though? Is it because the Bible is a product of its time? And as some claim, it, it needs to catch up with our new, greater scientific understanding. No, not at all. Um, there's much greater reasons for this in the scriptures. So let's have a look at what the Bible has to say about homosexual relationships themselves. I think most people here would be quite of the understanding that in the Old Testament it's certainly prohibited. In Leviticus chapter 18 verse 22 says, you shall not lie with a male as with a woman, it is an abomination. Uh, In Leviticus chapter 20 verse 13, we can see just how serious the sin is because the death penalty is prescribed for it. And it's only serious offences that get the death penalty in the scriptures. But of course, some people will quite validly point out that there's a whole heap of Old Testament laws that we don't keep anymore, and that's true. 
When Jesus came, he set aside a lot of the religious and cleanliness laws. So we don't put to death people who work on the Sabbath anymore. Uh, we do wear clothes that are woven out of two different types of cloth. We do eat pork. Um, some people even go to the extremes of eating prawns. I'm not sure why anyone would do that. They're horrible things. And for those who are listening into our internet ministry in the US or other places of the world, you might know them as shrimp. So now you would understand why, why would anyone eat such disgraceful things. But, but that's not a problem, is it? I can see some of you disagree with me on the prawn issue. You, you'll come around. <laughs> or maybe not. I got my wife to come around. All she had to do was develop an allergy to them and say she doesn't eat them anymore. Mind you, no, no, I won't go into that. Um, but these people are quite right. There are laws that we don't keep anymore. What's the reason for this? Is that because we now understand things better or is there another reason? Is there a theological reason? Well, what we have to do is we have to begin to understand the difference between the religious laws, some of which have been set aside, and the moral code, which is timeless. Whenever anyone seriously studies the Bible, it is patently obvious which of the laws are religious laws and therefore relate to the religious practices of the nation of Israel, and which of them relate to the moral code and the moral code helps us to understand from God's perspective how we should behave um, and how we should relate to God and how we should relate to our neighbor and it's the it's very obvious the difference between these two things and and anyone who argues that it's not obvious either haven't studied it or they have a very simple comprehension or in most cases they're being mischievous and they're wanting to misrepresent what God is very clearly saying about how we should relate to each other and how we should relate to him. It's not rocket science. The religious laws have been largely set aside, but I cannot find a single instance of a moral law being set aside. Of course, Jesus taught us how to offer grace instead of penalty. And a good example of that was when the adulterous woman was brought to them and they, and they wanted to stone her. And Jesus said, well, let he who is without sin be the first one to cast a stone. And, and they just started leaving. The oldest left first and the, the youngest left last. Um, but in the end, it was just Jesus and the woman there. The only one who was without sin, the only one who was able to cast the first stone was right there. And he was the only one. And he said, neither do I condemn you. But even though Jesus didn't condemn her, he didn't condone her adultery either. He also said, go and sin no more. And so Jesus taught us to offer grace instead of penalty without affirming the sin. And he also taught us um, the very important place of this thing called repentance, where we repent of sin. So... If that's what the Old Testament has to say about, about it, what does the New Testament have to say about the homosexual lifestyle? Some people don't believe the whole of the Bible. Some people go, oh, I don't like the Old Testament, so they'll never read it and they discard it. Some people take it even further than that. and They go, yeah, we only, we'll only read the, the bits that Jesus said. 
Um, they call themselves red letter Christians because they, you know how some Bibles have, have the words of Jesus in red? Well, they reckon that's what counts and everything else doesn't. And these sorts of people are very quick to point out that Jesus never said anything about homosexuality. Once again, they have no idea. In Matthew chapter 15, verses 19 to 20, Jesus said, For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. Then in Mark chapter 7, verses 18 to 23, and Jesus said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. Now, did Jesus say anything there about homosexuality? Some people were very quick to say no, but of course he did. Sexual immorality comes from the heart and it defiles. And it's only a construct of a hardened heart that would attempt at any level to suggest that homosexual relationships wouldn't be included under the heading sexual immorality especially to the audience that Jesus was talking to. He didn't need to spell it all out. They were well aware that homosexuality came under the heading of sexual immorality. In the Bible, even in the New Testament, LGBTQI spells sexual immorality. Any honest interpretation of scripture has to accept this. The New International Dictionary of New Testament Theology um, says that the Greek word pornea, which we translate as sexual immorality, can describe various extramarital sexual modes of behaviour insofar as they deviate from accepted social and religious norms. For example, homosexuality, promiscuity, pedophilia, and especially prostitution. Jesus had a lot to say on it. He said that it comes out of the heart and he said that it defiles the person. But the New Testament has a lot more to say yet. Uh, it's not that long ago that we were studying Paul's letter to the Romans. Uh, and in the early chapters of Romans, it spells out the broken nature of humanity and the world. And there's this downward spiral. Uh, godlessness, leads to sin, which leads to more godlessness, which leads to more sin, and it just spirals down and down and down. Let me read to you from Romans chapter 1. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. 
For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been secretly, sorry, clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honour him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images re resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. All right? So humanity, even though God has revealed himself as creator God, humanity have rejected creator God. Therefore, verse 24, therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. When most Bible-believing Christians read this, they'll go, right, there you go, homosexuals, they'll be judged for their sin. Well, yes, they will, but, but this is telling us something more than that. It's telling us something more important than this. What it's saying is when society rejects God, God's punishment on that society, God's wrath, is that he gives them over to all sorts of sins, including unnatural sexual relationships. What's being punished is the godlessness of society. And what it's saying is homosexuality getting a go in society is the wrath of God. And I want to be very clear here. I want you to make sure you catch this bit. And it's not only homosexuality. There's a whole heap of other sins that are listed there. It's the whole degrading of society. And so the New Testament is very clear. Homosexual relationships, yes, they are a sin. But more than that, the existence of homosexuality itself, the craving to be sexually active with someone of the same sex, is an expression of the wrath of God on that community. But once again, let me be very clear, it is not the only expression of the wrath of God on a godless society. 
The list is much broader than homosexuality. It includes envy. There's a lot of envy in our world, isn't there? It includes murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. It's a whole catalogue of sins and sin is something we need to repent of. And you may see some things on that list there which are things that you need to repent of. I know there's stuff on that list I need to repent of. So, I've been asked several times in my preaching career, why do Christians make this big issue out of homosexuality? Why, when there's so many other sins listed there, is homosexuality the ones that Christians speak out against? Why? And my answer to that is simple. It's because nobody is saying those other sins are good. Nobody is saying those other sins are something to be celebrated or something to be embraced or something to be endorsed by society. Nobody is saying gossip is good. Nobody is saying God has made you a gossip and you should celebrate the gossip who you are. Nobody's saying you should get together with another gossip and share your gossip together and, and together you can express your true nature as gossips. Nobody's saying stealing is good. Nobody's saying God has made you a thief. Therefore, you should celebrate the thief who God has made you. Nobody's saying you should get together with another thief and you can start stealing together. You could, you could form your own little crime syndicate and that'd be wonderful. Together, you can express your true nature as thieves. Nobody's even saying that adultery is good. Nobody's saying God has made you an adulterer. Those cravings that you have for those other women who are not your wife, well, you should celebrate those feelings. Embrace who you are. Nobody's saying... You should get together with another adulterer. And, and we can have a little ceremony to formalise your adultery. And, and we can hear you promise that you're going to continue in this adulterous relationship. That would be a nonsense, wouldn't it? It's not the Christians who have made it the issue. Godless society are the ones who have made it the issue. They've taken something which was known to be a sin and are now asking us to celebrate it. They're asking the whole of society, including Christians, to agree that homosexuality is a good thing. They want us to give our approval to it and to those who practice it. But we cannot celebrate what God has condemned. So, how should Christians relate to our neighbours who are embracing a homosexual lifestyle? And my answer is, we should respond to them the same as we would anybody else. The scriptures tell us that all have sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of God. And because of our sin, all deserve to die. That's my story. On my merits, on my behaviour... I deserve to die. If all the good things that I did were weighed up against all of the bad things that I did, 
God would pronounce all of my good deeds as worthless and all of my bad deeds as an abomination and the judgment would be, Michael, you deserve to die. On my own merits, I am no better, I am no worse than someone who is in a homosexual relationship. The only thing that gives me hope, the only thing that gives anyone hope, is the grace of God. To be forgiven takes faith and repentance. I won't be forget, forgiven unless my faith is in Christ and I repent of my sin. I have to agree with God that the way at times I've chosen to live my life has been utterly sinful. It's rotten. I've been rotten to the core. It's an abomination. I have to realise it about myself and confess that to God. And so I repent of my sin. I say, God, I agree that it was wrong. And then I turn my back on that sin. I turn my back on that old sinful lifestyle. I repent and God forgives me. In God's grace and mercy, he washes my sin away. And he makes me pure and holy. To begin a new life of righteousness as I submit to Christ Jesus as Lord and follow him. And this goes for everybody. I have particular sins that are a temptation for me. You have particular sins that are a temptation for you. I'm preaching to myself here as much as what I'm preaching to you, as much as what I'm preaching to anybody. But the moment that in my pride, I begin to convince myself that, ah, those certain sins, they're not really sins. That's okay for me to be doing that. That's when I embrace spiritual death rather than spiritual life. And so if my temptation is gossip or slander and I convince myself I'm not really sinning by doing these things, I'm embracing spiritual death. The same as if my temptation is the homosexual lifestyle, I convince myself there's, there's not really anything wrong with it, then I'm embracing spiritual death. How should we relate to our neighbours who are embracing the homosexual lifestyle? We should love them. Yes, we should try to help them to understand that it is a sin that needs to be repented of. Yes, they need to hear the good news and the invitation to come to Jesus Christ as Lord for the forgiveness of sins, just as we should be sharing this with everybody who we love. And how they respond is between them and God. I don't think arguing with them is, is going to help any. The Holy Spirit is the one who convicts the world of guilt in regard to the sin. You can't convict anyone. I can't convict anyone. That's the work of God. But something we cannot do is condone their sin or approve of their sin. And we certainly cannot celebrate this in. A few years ago, 
A friend of mine shared with me that a very good friend of hers, I think, was going to New Zealand to marry her lesbian lover. And my friend, a Christian, had been invited to the wedding. And she didn't know whether she should go or not. She didn't want to cut a friend off. She didn't want to break that friendship because she thought, I'm probably the only godly influence she's got in her life. But she didn't feel it was right for her to go to this same-sex wedding. What should she do? I said to her, well, the homosexual lifestyle is a sin, the same as any other sin. So if your friend was a thief and she was asking you to come and celebrate her latest bank heist and to help her plan the next bank heist, would you go? And she had her answer. Now, of course, we cannot celebrate same-sex relationships. But that doesn't mean that we stop loving those who are in them. Which brings us to the current debate. The question before us is, should the law be changed to allow same-sex couples to marry? And as a Christian who values what true marriage means... I have to vote no. Um, but why are we having this debate? Why are those who are so against God and against God's plan for marriage, why are the ones who are so keen to be able to participate in it? Why, in our culture now, are so few people overall actually wanting to get married? They just decide to just live together. Marriage doesn't matter for them. I mean, I've been in the ministry now for, what, how long, Robin? 12, 13 years? Something like that. I can count the number of weddings on my fingers that I've presided over. Why is it those who are so against God and his plan for marriage, why is it those who are so keen to be able to get married? The same-sex activists would have us believe that this is a debate over who's allowed to love one another. It's nothing of the sort. The government isn't interested at all in legislating about love. This legislation is about families and stuff. This is an ideological agenda of a godless nation. Only a few weeks ago, as we were studying the book of Revelation, we are learning about Babylon and what Babylon represents. And in the Bible, Babylon represents arrogant, godless civilization against God, against God's law, and against God's people. And as we considered what Babylon represents, I think most of us probably came to the realization, oh, I think we're living in Babylon. And we are. We live in a godless civilization. Australia is increasingly becoming a godless civilization. And our society is increasingly turning against God, against God's law, and against God's people, which is entirely consistent with Babylonian culture. In the book of Daniel, there's Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these are God's people literally living 
in the city of Babylon. And in the book of Daniel, there's a couple of very good examples where the residents of Babylon, who hated God's people, got their king to change various laws with the express purpose of putting God's people in a position where they would have to choose between honouring God or obeying the law. And the express intent of the activists today, or at least many of them, is to put God's people in a position where we have to choose between honouring God or obeying the law. And we've already seen this happening in, in other countries where, where gay marriage is already in. Uh, gay activists have targeted Christians. And you've probably heard the stories of Christian bakers who have been targeted um, by the anti-discrimination laws because they declined to bake a cake for same-sex weddings. And florists who refused to provide flowers for same-sex weddings have been targeted by anti-discrimination laws. And we're already seeing it in Australia now, even with this current debate. If you're not for same-sex marriage, you're labelled as a bigot. Um, and if you dare to speak out or to maintain the traditional biblical view of marriage, you're accused of hate speech. Um, for example, the Tasmanian Anti-Discrimination Commission found that the bishop in the Roman Catholic Church had a case to answer when the church distributed a booklet supporting the traditional view of marriage. Uh, this week, uh, same-sex marriage advocates instigated a petition to have a GP, Dr Pansy Lai, deregistered as a medical practitioner simply because she spoke out in favour of traditional marriage. These people are bullies. And the bias in the media I've found to be absolutely extraordinary, uh, particularly with the ABC. I, I've, for many years now, the ABC has been my go-to place for the news um, and go to the ABC website, that, just read the news there, as good as any newspaper. But I've just been finding the bias in the ABC uh, on the way that they report on stories and even choosing which stories that they're going to share and, and, and not share at all, I've just found extraordinary. And in the last couple of weeks, I've, I've actually stopped. ABC is no longer my go-to place. I've started reading The Australian. The homosexual lobby and the leftist media would have us believe that the homosexual community are all light and love and it's all about equality uh, and it's against discrimination and it's for rights of the individual and justice and it's about tolerance. And yet anyone who's against them are presented as vile, hateful bigots. Uh, that would be me this morning. But what I've been saying, seeing so far, couldn't be, that, that couldn't be further from the truth. Uh, those who claim to be the leaders in tolerance, you know, for tolerance, this is all about tolerance, have come across to me as being the most intolerant people that, that I've seen. But I want to finish by saying this. Not everybody who's tempted by homosexuality have bought into the whole ideological war against Christians. And we shouldn't say that they have. And we shouldn't see all homosexuals as being at war against Christianity. 
most of them are exactly the same as any of us. Um, they are a broken people struggling with real temptations and real sins that cut them off from God. But even those activists who are warring against the church and against Christians, how would Christ have us relate to them? If this is a concerted attack by some, may only be a few, against Christian, Christians and Christianity, you may find yourself considering them as an enemy. How did Jesus teach us to treat our enemies? Matthew 5. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbour and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? Or if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Love. No matter how appalled you may feel about somebody's lifestyle, love them. No matter how anybody may wrong you or target you with claims of discrimination, love them and pray for them. That's the godly response. Vote no by all means. I believe we have a duty to do so. We have a duty to stand firm on God's word and to share that with the world. But also accept that persecution will come. Love those who are against you and against your obedience to God and pray for them. Don't just pray that the marriage act will stay the same. Pray for those who want to change it and love them. Remember, for those who are tempted by homosexuality, this is a deeply personal issue. Temptation and sin always is. Your temptations and your sin are a deeply personal issue. My temptations and my sin are a deeply personal issue. And so we love. We love them. Same as we love everybody. But we don't condone the sin. Right, well, let's pray, hey? Heavenly Father, we come before you today in the attitude that no one is righteous, least of all us. And yet you, in your great love and mercy, sent your Son, Jesus Christ, as a saviour for the unrighteous, as a saviour for us. And Lord, on this Marriage Sunday, we thank you for the gift of marriage. We thank you that you created us, male and female. And we thank you for your wonderful design, where two become one. 
And Lord, we thank you for your marvellous design that this one flesh relationship would be the family unit in which children would be born and raised. And Lord, we thank you for our own families and for the children of this church. Father, we pray also for those who you have called to singleness. We thank you that you call some to be married and some to be single. And we pray that we would be able to honour you in whichever station you have called us. And Lord, we pray for our nation at this time. Father, it seems that we live in Babylon and that our nation is poised to reject you yet again. Lord, we do pray for this postal survey. We ask that your spirit would move in this land and that you would touch the consciences of the people of this land and that they would value the true definition of marriage. Lord, we pray for our political leaders, that you would reveal to them your wisdom and that they would be determined to retain the Marriage Act as it is. We also pray for those who are tempted toward the homosexual lifestyle. Lord, give us grace and love toward them. And we pray that you would reveal to them the hope that we can all have in the love and mercy of Christ. And we pray for those activists who seem to be so against you, against your word and against your children. We pray for those who would attack, accuse and condemn. Lord, help us to love them. And please touch their hearts that faithlessness would be replaced with faith, that hatred would be replaced with love and that godlessness would be replaced by the Holy Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.